Hello, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Lady T, and you are listening to Consensus Pod. Here on Consensus Podcast, we discuss faith, family, and navigating modern society from the nuclear family structure. And here we go. (laughs) So if you joined us Sunday, you know that my discussion was on father hunger. It is what I would like to call the silent epidemic. It's something that we don't discuss, ironically, although we're always discussing fatherlessness. Um, But we never seem to truly get to the root of fatherlessness. We don't go into great detail to recognize the harm that is done to children when they grow up without fathers. And I think that that is the result of what we will be discussing today. That is the deinstitutionalization of and even the breakdown of American marriages. So grab your popcorn, grab you something to drink, and stay tuned because this is going to be an interesting one. Roll music. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Consensus Pod. As I mentioned earlier, today we're going to discuss something that is the prelude to what we discussed in episode one, which was father hunger. And for those who don't, who didn't listen to my pilot episode, and that we discussed what father hunger is, the causes of it, and how that negatively affects children. And, uh, well, where does father hunger come from? It comes from what we have in society today, and that is the deinstitutionalization of marriage. And when I say the deinstitutionalization of marriage, I mean the removal of the standard of the nuclear traditional family as the norm and the replacement of secondary alternative styles such as remarriage or no marriage at all cohabitation single parenthood um and various other types of relationships including what is becoming a growing phenomenon at least online the quote polyamorous or polyandrous and the polygynous uh couple which i can see in the near future people pushing for their right to legally and lawfully marry more than one person okay so let's get into it when we speak about the deinstitutionalization of marriage obviously we talk about the removal of the nuclear traditional family as the standard as it was generations ago and in preparation for this particular episode I decided I was going to study the writings of two people Uh, there's Dr. Andrew Sherlin of the John Hopkins University and that of David Lutz the author of the institution of marriage and the virtuous society now both of these writings are very informative and they're real eye openers i would encourage anyone who is interested in this subject to please uh look these these items up for yourself and read them in their entirety 
So, what happened with the union of marriage from about the mid-60s until now? Well, in order to fully make sense of what happened, I have to start before with the era when, in America at least, the marriage was at its peak, meaning it's at its best. It was flourishing, and that was about the 1950s. 1950s and prior, but statistically speaking, the 1950s saw a higher rate of marriages than even the previous 10 years before the 1940s. 1940s, about 90% of Americans across the board, meaning blacks, whites, um, Asians, you name it, were married. In the 1950s, those numbers actually climbed 5%, and 95% of, uh, it was a 95% marriage rate. So, why is that? And this is something that Dr., uh, I'm sorry, not Dr. <laughs> Sherlin, but David Lutz alludes to in his, uh, or not alludes to, but he writes about in the institution of marriage when he speaks about the virtuous society and the virtues of marriage or the virtuous marriage versus what we have today and Andrew Sherlin also speaks about when he or rather writes about when he writes about the cohabitation or not the cohabitation the companionate marriage versus the individualized marriage so what is a companionate marriage well about the 1950s we had a clear understanding under the law under the expectation of virtue I should say that a man and a woman had a duty to be a companion to their spouse well what did that mean what does it mean to be a companion to your spouse it means in no less terms to be a support system to be obviously a companion which is why it's called a companionette marriage to be a friend, to be a lover, um, and to take on the duty of doing your part to meet your spouse's needs. Now, today we have this concept very confused. We think with our materialistic minds that the marriages in the 1950s were so great because men worked and brought home the money and women cleaned and cooked and that was part of the marriage of course that under the traditional marriage we had a institution which uh was structured with guidelines and divided responsibilities and yes those were based on gender so what we don't understand today is that what we don't understand today is that back then aside of duties and responsibilities regarding who brings home the bacon and who cooks the meals who cleans the house there was a separate expectation as to uh, fulfilling the needs of your spouse that is the part that of the marriage system that has really been corrupted the most because in the 1950s the marriage uh, under the virtuous marriage there was an understanding that I needed to bring 
with me the ability to meet the desires and the needs and wants of my husband or my wife. <clears throat> Today, we don't have that. Well, what happened? In the 1960s, we saw the rise of social movements such as feminism, and we saw social movements such as the human potential movement. Well, we don't really see the rise of feminism. I meant women's lib because feminism had been existing since 18, I think like 48 or something like that. So anyway, um, along with the rise of the human potential movement came this attitude that encouraged people to uh, focus more on themselves as an individual, focus on individual growth, on personal achievement, personal satisfaction, meeting one's own desires, and that even meant meeting you know your sexual desires to the fullest extent. Here's where the problem went. Now, if it was a bunch of single people listening to that and going out of their way to fulfill their needs and wants and whatever before they entered marriage, that wouldn't be a problem. What occurred is you had married people jumping on the bandwagon of this human potential movement. And of course, the influx of women into the workforce that altered the, uh, the guidelines of the virtues of the traditional marriage. So you had a, a great number of men picking up the slack at home with the domestic duties because their wives were entering the workforce and helping with the bills. This altered the expectations at home and from those guidelines started to fade until they collapsed and left couples with the responsibility of deciding each couple for itself what was best for that their own individual marriage hence the term individualized marriage so from there uh, we saw a lot a rise of divorce because people were shifting their focus from what does my husband or my wife need from me um, they were moving away from the expectation of being a lover, a friend, a support system for that spouse of theirs. And instead, they were geared toward satisfying their own needs. And it, it caused a lot of issues in marriages. And Andrew Sherlin actually writes about this, uh, the changes in marriage in his, in his article, The Deinstitutionalization of American Marriage where he says, even as I was writing my 1978 article, the changing division of labor in the home and the increase in childbearing outside marriage were undermining the institutionalization, the institutionalized basis of marriage. The distinct roles of the homemaker and breadwinner were fading as more married women entered the paid, work, the paid labor force. Looking into the future, I thought perhaps an equitable division of household labor might become institutionalized but what happened instead was the stalled revolution in Hochschild's well-known phrase. Men do somewhat more homework than they used to do, but there is a wide variation and each couple must work out their own arrangement without clear guidelines. And so with the expectation of each couple working out um, the stipulations of their marriage, rather than going by a set standard uh, that society has set, before uh, marriage started to shift and alter and of course the other thing that Sherlyn mentioned in that particular writing was um, the increase in children born outside of wedlock um, I am African-American and I've read the statistics regarding my community and the out-of-wedlock birth rate 
And I know that over the years from the night back in the 1950s, it was, I think, less than 18 percent of black kids were born outside of marriage. Less than 18 percent of black kids were raised outside of marriage as well, because you do have that uh, thing that happens where you'll have some children that are born out of marriage, but then the parents marry and whatever. And it's not always a shotgun marriage because you did have those back in the day, too. But sometimes, you know, there's the plan to get married and then they have the kids. So it's like, well, we were going to do it anyway, whatever. But uh, I don't I wouldn't recommend that. Um, just let me say that. But that does sometimes happen. However, once, you know, we moved into the 1960s and 70s, and we saw things like the Welfare Reform Act and, you know, whatnot, our community started to collapse with the increase of single parent homes. And that's something that from the 1960s on forward has been happening across the board for every race. We saw an increase in single parent led homes, which of course leads to what we talked about last episode with father hunger just becoming an epidemic. And then there's the disappearing dads and issues of abandonment and whatnot. Um, So what also happened around this time was, of course, we evolved from the companions to the individualized marriage in the 60s, starting in the 60s. And then you had an increase in divorces. You had uh, a growing acceptance throughout the years of things that were once considered unacceptable, such as cohabitation, And if you grew up religious, especially if you grew up Christian, I know you heard the term shacking up. So um, cohabitation became a sort of norm in in American uh, relationships. And that is something else that Sherlyn writes about when he was talking about the move away from um, the nuclear family structure in, in the 70s you had short-term arrangements that would normally turn to marriages or breakups just becoming live-in situations for whatever number of t- uh, for an X amount of number of years. Um, and it, this happened so much so, it became so prevalent that in a few states, if you live with your boyfriend or your girlfriend for a span of about one year, then the law allots you certain legal privileges that were once set aside specifically for husband and wife. I know you guys have all heard of common law marriages in which two cohabitating people live together for a period of seven years and then earn the same rights uh, to their boyfriend or girlfriend as a husband or wife would with their spouse, of course, with a few exceptions. Um, Now, in those situations, that boils down to who Uh, I'm sorry, to your living lover having the ability to make medical decisions on your behalf if they are unable to, whereas before, if you weren't married, then that would go to a next of kin, like a husband, not a husband, like a, uh, a mother or a father. And of course, if you're married, then that would be something that your spouse would decide. So with the emergence of cohabitation as an acceptable for as an acceptable alternative to marriage, you also have remarriages and stepfamily situations that Andrew Sherlin writes about. And he kind of writes about this in the same paragraph that he writes about cohabitation. And I want to give you guys a brief reading of 
the deinstitutionalization of marriage under Andrew's writing about cohabitation, and then I'm going to get into this further. So, Andrew writes, In the 1970s, neither I nor most other American researchers foresaw greatly the increased role of cohabitation in the adult life course. We thought that, except among the poor, cohabitation would remain a short-term arrangement among childless young adults who would quickly break up or marry. But it became more prevalent and more complex phenomena. For example, cohabitation was created an additional layer of complexity in step families. When I wrote my article, nearly all step families were formed by the remarriage of one or both spouses. Now, about one-fourth of all stepfamilies in the United States and one-half of all stepfamilies in Canada are formed by cohabitation rather than marriage. It is not uncommon, especially among the low-income population, for a woman to have a child outside marriage, end her relationship with that partner, and then begin cohabitating with a different partner. This new union is equivalent in structure to a stepfamily but does not involve marriage. Sometimes the couple later marries, and if neither has been married before, their union creates a first marriage with stepchildren. As a result, we now see an increasing number of stepfamilies that do not involve marriage and an increasing number of first marriages that involve stepfamilies. Now, this created a completely different layer to the marriage because, of course, just generations before, in the 50s, it was understood that when a family marries, there was uh, something that David Lutz writes about, and he calls it the virtues of nuclear. Uh, he calls it the virtues of marriage. And under the virtues of marriage, it was understood that a person was to uh, really accept the responsibility and honor his or her marital vows, and that included for better or for worse. So at that time, it was very common for a child to be reared in the home of both biological parents with their birth father and their birth mother. And the parents both worked out, you know, discipline and actually fathers at that time were the main disciplinarians in the family, although mothers did do a lot of rearing too. So when this, when the virtues of marriage became a thing of the past and remarriages started to occur at higher rates, you had a lot of children that were growing up in a situation where they had either their birth mother and a stepfather or a birth father and a stepmother, which made the situation a little bit more complex. And it did so because it really uh, it brought to the, into question the role of the step parent in terms of discipline and you know how much say so a stepmother or stepfather had in deciding what was best for their children how to what extent were they allowed to parent and allowed to discipline their stepchildren so that is the thing that andrew sherlin talks about and regarding the the complexities of step families as far as step families without marriage it's as i was saying before the cohabitation of parent of a parent with their child in his example a woman and her children with a new man that's not her husband and calling it a family it's not the same thing um under the marriage there is a legal obligation and a moral obligation to that woman and the children by that man if he's just living there and cohabitating with her he's not obligated to anyone so where do all of these things in the past the 
evolution of marriage from cohabitation to individualized marriage, the uh, shift or the away from the virtues of marriage into a more self-centered individualistic marriage and of course the acceptance or the embracing of social movements such as the human potential movement by married people well where does that land us it lands us where we are today it lands us in a society where 41 percent of first marriages end in divorce where 63 percent of second marriages end in divorce and 73 percent of third marriages end in divorce so as you can see with each new marriage your chances of getting divorced increase it also lends us to what we have now and oddly enough there is a online outcry by um, by people in society and i'm assuming it's all american because i'm viewing it from where i'm standing okay so there's an outcry for the return to the marriage that our grandmothers and grandfathers had we keep hearing that and i hear people say that online you know men complain well these women don't do like grandma used to do. They don't cook like grandma. They don't clean like grandma. They don't take care of the home and their man like grandma. And then you hear women saying, well, these men don't provide like grandpa and they don't work like grandpa. They're not as masculine or as, as manly as grandpa, but we want to cry out for what grandma and grandpa had. The thing about that is when we talk about the marriage that grandmother and grandfather had today, what we're thinking in terms of is we're thinking through the materialistic lens that we've been so conditioned to accept and see the world in grandfather we respect our grandfather as a man today because of the money he brought into that house we respect grandma today because of how clean she kept that house we see these people in terms of servitude and that's it now, I'm not going to lie, there is a, an aspect of marriage that requires you to serve your spouse, and there's nothing wrong with that. However, bringing home the bacon and knowing how to mop floors is not what defines a good marriage. Those are duties and responsibilities that men and women carried on uh, from, at that time, and we're asking for that to become the norm again today. But we're not bringing back what really made the, the marriages great back then which was a foundation of love and responsibility and acceptance of obligation to your spouse both both by husband and wife and a determination and dedication to make those marriages work even in times of trouble and i want to read this uh this pair these two paragraphs from david lutz's the institution of marriage before i end this episode because he talks about this. And the first paragraph says, the transition from a traditional to a liberal society has been accompanied by a transformation in our understanding of marriage from an institutional model to a romantic model. While romantic love is a powerful motivator to form a personal relationship, it often fades when those relationships become rocky. Traditional marriage is a social institution with moral obligations. It forms the core of families, promotes social stability, and endures fluctuating emotions notwithstanding. So he taught he's talking about the overestimation of romantic of romanticism inside of marriages today where well I do you know where we oftentimes care more about how we feel about our spouse than our moral obligation to them and that's the problem we've put 
the love, the, the feeling of love ahead of the moral obligation to the commitment and the union of marriage. Well, here's the problem. Here's the thing that we're forgetting. And I saw a young lady explain this on TikTok ex- almost exactly as I'm going to explain it now. Love is not just a feeling. Love is an action. Love is a choice. I am married and I have been since I was 22 years old. I'm 32 now. So I choose to love my husband. I express that love for my husband and the things that I do for him. And part of that is meeting the the obligations of, you know, taking care of the house and the children because I am a, the stay-at-home mom. He loves me and he meets that need that I... That, uh, I have for love and the things that he does for me outside of just paying the mortgage and paying the bills and paying the car note. That's it's more to that to him than that. And honestly, if I were to look at my husband in just the terms of what he does for our household financially, um, I don't think that I could be able to be I wouldn't make a very good spouse. Because if the only thing a woman can respect about a man is how much money he brings in the house, she doesn't value that man at all. She just values his money. Now I will say this, um, love is important in a marriage. Of course it is. I'm not saying that you should not love your spouse, but where we've overestimated the love in our marriages, we forgot that at some, that at some point all marriages are going to hit those rocky spots and those rough patches. What happens too often now is that when we hit those, those rough patches, we destroy our marriage by throwing it away rather than doing what was uh, understood in the 50s and before and working through the marriage. We don't fix our marriages anymore. We just, if they break, we leave them and try to find something new. We're weak in that aspect. Lastly, and I wanna say this quick before I get out of here, uh, David Lutz talks about you know the virtues of a marriage and that, of course, is what I was speaking of when <laughs> I talked about the virtuous marriage or the virtuous family. Um, so, again, he writes, Traditional societies are not frozen in the past, but are characterized by accepting and building upon the wisdom of the ages that has been handed down from one generation to the next. Societies capable of standing the test of time are organized in conformity with our common human nature. We human beings naturally live not as rugged individuals, but as members of communities. Within a true community, there exists a harmony of the good of the members and the good of the community as a whole, the common good. In traditional societies, ethics is primarily virtue ethics, where the virtues are the excellent characteristics of beings who share our human nature. The most important community within a virtuous society is the family, and the core of a virtuous family is the institution of marriage. And we talk about the virtuous marriage, we go all the way back to the guidelines, the expectations, the uh, moral obligations that when this generation claims it wants to it wants put back into marriages, but I don't think it really does. Because it takes no, uh, or there's no further evidence of this than a few clicks online because people are spewing their guts with, they're claiming they want the companionate, virtuous, uh, traditional marriage, but then keeping the individualized human potential movement attitude. You can't have it both ways. As we like to say, pick a struggle. Either you want to be 
a you either want to be recognized as an individual and you want to um, meet all of your needs specifically and without having to reciprocate that or you want what we claim we want that our grandparents had which was the expectation of meeting your husband or your wife's needs which was to be a support system a lover a friend a confidant to do more than just keep a clean house and pay the bills We've literally dumbed down the traditional marriage to pay bills and clean homes. And we have no idea. That alone says that we don't know what the heck we're talking about. Or we're demanding something without really understanding it. Um, when we're online spewing about how we want the same thing that our grandfathers and grandmothers had. What that generation understood was in order for a man or a woman to be a good spouse, he or she had to know how to be a friend first and to be a friend continually in that marriage and what they understood was that they had a moral obligation to actually honor their marital vows of in sickness and in health for rich or for poor forsaking all others through better or worse we don't want to do that what we want to do too many times in marriages nowadays is the first sign of trouble we throw the whole marriage away and then complain about the consequences of our actions and we complain about the rise of divorce we complain about the fatherlessness epidemic we complain about father hunger we complain about uh this we complain about that but what we're doing is we're we're continuing the cycle of all broken things without going back to the root of our uh of the success of marriage and adopting the virtuous model of marriage again that is all the time I have for this episode. Thank you so much for joining me. Join me again Friday as we discuss what success is. We're going to compare individual success to the facade of luxury and or extreme luxury and wealth and all of that good junk that we're force fed through materialism in society as a means to measure success through things and dollars and cents. Again, tune in on Friday, guys. Thank you for joining me.